Today's episode is sponsored by Shack Spindle Company. Shack Spindle Company has been manufacturing hand weaving looms and spinning wheels in Boulder, Colorado since 1969. Shacked products are beautifully crafted tools designed with the craftsperson in mind. Sign up for their monthly newsletter at shackspindle.com to be entered into a drawing to win a shacked lily loom. Their newsletter includes free patterns, product updates, and shacked news. Thanks so much, Shack Spindle Company. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 174 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about building a business in ceramics with my guest, Emily Reinhardt. Emily created The Object Enthusiast in 2011 right after graduating from Kansas State University. The greatest gift of all was the mentorship and guidance of professors and teachers in the ceramics department at Kansas State, and without those mentors, The Object Enthusiast would not have been born. Emily focuses primarily on creating functional objects that elevate the everyday, while also branching off into some sculptural and conceptual pieces. Over the last year, the focus has shifted from mass production to a slower pace of creation, making sure each piece is brought to life with love and intention. Emily Reinhardt, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for coming on the show. And I was just mentioning to you before we started recording that I have one of your pieces sitting on my desk. It holds all of my Sharpies and I love it and look at it every day, inspires me every day. So I'm just super excited to talk to you about your journey. And um, I wondered if we could start with um, where you grew up. Did you grow up in Kansas City? I did grow up here. Um, I grew up in Overland Park, which is like a suburb of Kansas City, um, and moved away for college and kind of stayed away for about 11 years. Um, and then moved back here in 2016. And it felt like a brand new city to me. So it's, it's been nice to be here and get to know my hometown, but in a new way than what I grew up with. Yeah, I always, um, well, associate Kansas City as being kind of an artistic place because I don't know Hallmark is located there, and mm-hmm. I, feel, I do feel like there's it's kind of a, a bit of a hub for for artists in a way. It is. We have a lot going on here, and it's really exciting to be an artist in this city. And you know, all my peers and uh, people who I look up to are here, and it's thriving. So it's good. Yeah. Um, and were your parents artistic, or what kind of work did they do? Uh, they're not artistic. Um, my dad is an engineer, so I feel like if he ever got into ceramics, he would be so good at it because he is so precise and, you know, measures three times and cuts once. And, um, it's, it's funny. I feel like a lot of what this, what's needed in ceramics, I'm, I'm kind of absorbing, his meticulous mind. Um, and my mom is a writer. And so, you know, she has creative talents in different ways, but I, I don't have any family members with an artist's background. So. And it sounds like I'm not you... sure where I got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you were kind of a collector of things as a kid. Is that, is that accurate to say? That is accurate. I was always kind of the one with the most stuff and always bugging my sisters. I can remember, I remember this moment with my older sister where I would just be in her room and I'd be like, is there anything you don't want? Like anything, I will take anything from you. And she would finally just pick something just to get me out of her room and just be like, here, have it, get out of here. (laughs) 
So I've always loved stuff. I don't know why. Yeah. No, I'm, I can relate to that as, oh, I'm a middle child. So I was both yeah. the younger sister and the older sister and um, going into somebody's room and asking for things and then being given one to just get out of there. I can totally yeah. relate to that. Um, okay. So uh, when you went to Kansas State, um, it doesn't sound like ceramics was actually your intention when you arrived. It wasn't like you were going to go there and do this. It was like you were going to go there and do something artistic, maybe, um, but discovered ceramics basically because it was like a required class to do something else, or it was like a, a class that you had to take like a as a prerequisite or something. That's exactly right. I Before college, um, I was kind of in my head imagining I wanted to be an interior designer. Um, and K-State has a very competitive program for that. And I just didn't have the grades for it. So I kind of was like, well, I guess I'll just go into art then. Um, and originally my driving artistic dream was photography. Um, so I kind of picked my concentration and needed a 3D elective class. And that's when I took ceramics and it just blew me away. And my teachers were so incredible. And I fell in love with the medium kind of through the enthusiasm of my teachers and educators. And I mean, it was like two weeks into my first class and I was changing my major already. And I wonder what appealed to you specifically? I mean, it sounds like this, these teachers were really important. And I think that speaks to the power of people believing in you and um, asking a lot of you um, and all the, the good things that a teacher, a really good teacher can do. But mm-hmm. it has to be more than that, right? Like it also has to be you feeling like I'm good at this and I enjoy this. And so I'm wondering what it is or what it even was then about ceramics that sort of scratched an itch in your mind. Mm -hmm. I think for me, it was that, you know, that love of the tangible object and then that ability to make one with my bare hands, um, whether it was like a little pinch pot or, a sculpture. Um, it, there was something magical about bringing, you know, a lump of earth to life in a new way. And I, I don't know, I, I wasn't, I didn't have any raw talent by any means, but, um, and later I had a conversation with my professor kind of towards the end of my time at K-State. And he was telling me, he's like, the students who, worked really hard and, um, you know, didn't give up on the medium, whether they had raw talent or not. Like I can teach you ceramics. I can't teach you a work ethic. And with ceramics being such a demanding medium, I, I fell in love with it. And then the work ethic of like, I need to show up here every day. I can't neglect the piece that I built yesterday because it's going to need my attention tomorrow. And, I I really, I feel like I was at that coming of age of maturity when I found ceramics and that, that need to kind of hone in on something and show up every day for it and give it my all. Um, All of that clicked when I discovered ceramics and teachers really bolstered that and um, helped me understand the medium. Yeah. And I think that work ethic is a really important piece of this. I mean, ceramics is incredibly demanding. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but, Mm -hmm. um, which is, which is true. But I really, in any, um, field that you go into, that ability to persevere and to, just keep at it is so, so important. And mm-hmm. it sounds like you had this one professor, is his name Yoshi? Um, yeah. And, Yoshi and Akita. Akita. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and sort of watching him, it sounds like was really uh, something clicked in, in your mind around like just watching the way he worked or how hard he worked. Yes. Yeah. He was, um, you know, a lot of people at school called him a silent master where he was kind of that, you know, he was Japanese potter and classically trained and, and kind of that 
old school stoic professor um, force in in the studio. And I wasn't afraid of him, but I was like, oh, intimidated and and like in awe at the same time. And so um, once I hit my senior year, like he he worked. He, he had his own studio upstairs at where my studio was, but I was in like the senior studio where we basically just had cubicles in a room and he worked next to me and his, he, you know, he had a massive studio upstairs and he chose to kind of work downstairs with the seniors. And he always, you know, it was such a humble setup, like a five gallon bucket upside down and a stool and a board on top of the bucket. And that was his little workspace. And so, you know, I, I got to know him really well because, you know, we had a small group of seniors my year and there weren't a lot of us that showed up on the weekends and after hours. And I was always there. I mean, I was there every day and he was there every day. And so there was kind of that bonus of like, Oh, I get to hang out with this guy and get to know him and watch him work. And at the same time, he was noticing that I was there too. So it was kind of this really, you know, we, we didn't talk a lot, but like, it was one of those relationships where we were both absorbing each other's, you know, dedication and energy to the, the craft and, um, I'll always be grateful for those years of working with him. Yeah. And um, did did you end up with eventually with his kiln or with some of his supplies after, after like later after graduation? Yeah, I did. I So I graduated in 2010 and then I kind of stayed around and I was working at a restaurant and just trying to figure out what what I would do after graduation. And He and his wife were, he had just, he was about to retire. So he and his wife were about to move to Oregon and they were packing their house and a lot of, he, his health was failing also. So he had had several strokes and kind of lost movement and mobility in the left side of his body. And um, so toward the end of his career, I was around and I wasn't doing that much. And I was kind of just eager to stay in connection with him outside of not having class anymore. Um, So I would help, I would go over to their house and help them pack or just help them clean things up or help paint the house and stuff for them to sell. And um, it was when I, when they were about to leave, when he gave me his kiln and his wheel and a lot of other equipment and supplies and, he just told me, he's like, you worked really hard and you deserve this. And it was, it was always so surprising to me because I, I just thought I didn't, I, I didn't know that I had impressed him in any way. Like I was, I was there and I enjoyed ceramics, but I I wasn't amazing at it, you know, my senior year. So it, it was really magical to find out that I, I did impress him and that I, I had been more than just a student um, working with him. And so it was kind of one of those things where I was like, wow, okay, he, he does like me. That's cool. (laughs) Yeah. And that, you know, having that equipment is really what changed everything for me. I started an Etsy shop and had a little studio in a spare bedroom and just made it work. Yeah. Because when you graduate from college and you're an artist that, does a medium that depends on expensive, big mm-hmm. uh, equipment, and in your case, a kiln that you know has safety stuff required. All of this, all of this right. stuff, right? Like, or you know, if you're a printmaker or a weaver, um, you know, these are all things you know that require big, expensive equipment. And I've talked to many people who you know, they leave college, and it's like that means leaving access to that studio, and it's it's hard. It's hard to then continue to make your work because you don't have a way to make it. Um, and it just sounds like that gift was the, gave you the ability to, to get back to making it. But in the meantime, you, um, had started a blog. 
I did. My business started as a blog called The Object Enthusiast, and it was really just my desire to keep talking about ceramics and to feel part of the circle, you know, of like, I don't have a studio right now. I'm not a student anymore. I, but I'm craving the connection and the conversation and all that stuff. So yeah, I started a blog and I purposely picked the name, the object enthusiast, because I knew I wanted it to evolve someday. Um, originally my dream was to open a store, like a little flower shop or just gift shop kind of thing. Um, so I kind of picked this name that could evolve and change with me, whether I had a kiln someday or, you know, a store or just a blog. Um, it kind of just felt like, and, you know, being the collector that I am, it was kind of the right, uh, name to carry onward. Right. Totally. Very wise move. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Younger me knew what she was doing. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. But, but at the same time, um, another aspect of art school, and I hope this is changing. Maybe it is. I haven't checked in with art school curriculum, but, um, is that at least it sounds like at Kansas state at the time that you were there, um, there aren't or weren't a lot of practical business classes, right? It's sort of like you're going to either go get gallery representation and do that, or you can teach, you know, and and do that route. But it's not like, oh, you could just have a business and, you know, sell your ceramics online and have wholesale accounts and learn about accounting and bookkeeping and contracts and all, and, you know, inventory management and all the rest of the things that might um, and pricing and, you know, all the <laughs> marketing mm-hmm. and all the rest of the things that a person might need as skills to actually make a living um, selling direct to consumer or selling wholesale. And um, and so I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about um, that shift. I mean, even just setting up that Etsy mm-hmm. shop when you first got the kiln and, or, or we're selling off inventory of things you had made in college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, that it was not ever laid out to me that I could make and sell my work. Um, that it, it's not like anyone told me I couldn't, but nobody brought that up as an idea. And it, you know, when I was in school, it was very cut and dry. Like, you get lucky and a gallery wants to represent you or you get a job or you teach or you go on to grad school. And I knew I wasn't ready for grad school. Um, I also, I have never felt called to teach. I enjoy teaching like a quick workshop or something, but um, I think teachers are so special. And I just knew, I, I don't believe that I have that special gift of, um, being able to help a student along a path. Um, maybe I do, I don't know, but I I just knew that I wanted to try and it was really just out of, I mean, I, I don't want to just call it luck, but, um, the timing of me joining Etsy and social media, you know, I, I think it's a lot harder for people today to start something that's fresh and brand new. Um, I mean, I think about even picking a domain name would be really hard now because so many people have Etsy shops and websites and Instagram handles. And so it was something that I just tried on a whim and, um, you know, I made my first sale to my mom's best friend. And I remember (laughs) being kind of like, dang it, I wanted it to be a stranger. Um, like I was, I was thankful for the sale, but I was also like, I know that's just because my mom talks about it all the time. And so it was one of those things that just once I was able to devote myself to trying, um, I was able to make it happen. And I do think that things are shifting because I've been invited to be a visiting artist at many, a couple of schools. And so I've, I've got, to have this conversation with students. And I, I think there are classes being created sort of around art as business. And, um, I really wish I would have had that when I was younger, but at the same time, I'm, 
I'm always learning as I go and things are always changing and it's nice to kind of shift with the times and grow as I go. I want to take a minute now to hear from our sponsor, Jane Patrick from Shack Spindle Company. I'm Jane Patrick. I'm the creative director at Shack Spindle Company in Boulder, Colorado. And Jane, um, are you seeing a renewed interest in weaving right now? I would say weaving is really hot right now. Um, Part of it is the pandemic. People are stuck at home. Um, They want to do their craft. They need tools. So we are seeing a lot of growth in that area, especially with rigid heddle weaving. But we also have a lot of floor looms on order. People are just wanting to invest in their craft. And we're really seeing that coming on strong. Um, An area that is a deep interest right now is tapestry weaving. And we came out with a new loom this spring called the Eris Tapestry Loom. And I think we came out with it at the right time because tapestry is very meditative and it's very intimate. And I think that's what people want right now. It's not fast, it's slow, it's thoughtful. Yeah, absolutely. And I know Shaq just um, last year celebrated the 50th anniversary of the company. And I wondered if you have um, just some elements that you feel really contributed to the longevity of this company. What, what do you think um, led to its long-term success? Well, I think we've always developed products that were the right product at the right time. And I think part of that was because of our passion for the craft. And Barry Schacht, my husband, who founded the company, is really interested in making quality products that are usable, that work well for the craft person. And we're always changing, uh, updating our products to make them better. And I think that has contributed as well as having a really good dealer network and also emphasizing education because education is key to people learning the craft. So I think basically those are the things that have really made us a strong company over many years. Absolutely. So where can people go to just find out more information if they're curious? Sure. Um, Go to our website. We have a brand new website. I just love it. It's um, shackspindle.com, and we're on Instagram and Facebook and all those social media places. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dane. This has been wonderful. And thank you. Thank you so much, Shack Spindle Company. And now back to my conversation with Emily. I'm glad to hear that that is changing. And I think maybe it's because it's so much easier to build an audience um, Mm -hmm. directly now than it was 10 years ago. Um, And so because of that capacity, um, you know, the people need those skills. Um, And so there's a demand for for those skills to be taught. So I'm really glad to hear that that's changing. Okay, so you started this Etsy shop and um, got your first customer. Um, And then, um, and then how did it grow from there? Like, how did the object enthusiast really become um, a a company, a business? And I know you were you were waitressing, you you had a a part time job in the mornings Mm or, or part of the day and were, you know, back in the studio making ceramics um, part of the day, which is pretty exhausting, trying to do both of those things. And, and you know, at some point you were able to just do um, your art business. So how did that, how did sort of describe that sort of intermediary time when, when things did begin to pick up and shift? Yeah, so I did, I, I kind of never left the restaurant that I was working at, but I did go get a job um, at a credit union and I was their social media coordinator. Um, I was part of the marketing department and I was really amazed that I was hired because I, other, you know, I had a fine arts degree and I was hired as part of the marketing team. And I remember my boss, Mike telling me, you know, I hired you because you have create a creative skill set that not, you know, the normally trained finance person doesn't have. 
Um, so I started writing a blog for them, kind of a personal finance blog. And um, at the same time, you know, I was kind of looped in on these marketing projects, but had no marketing experience. And my boss, Mike, he let me sign up for workshops, go to seminars. He let me just kind of quietly study marketing best practices at my desk. And so the whole time I was doing that, I was equating it in my brain as a ceramics business and how would I market that? Um, And so I was kind of like studying for two different things at the same time. I was studying for this job that I had and for the potential of my own business. And that, that uh, credit union job was a part-time job. So I was always picking jobs that left me time in the studio. Um, So I was kind of like splitting my time between both things and um, slowly was getting some wholesale requests and, um, you know, selling regularly on Etsy. And I was signing up for craft fairs and events and I was kind of getting the hang of it and, and realizing like, okay, this is, this is going really well. And, um, at the time my, you know, I had a boyfriend at the time and he had moved to Omaha, Nebraska. And that's kind of when I was like, you know what, I think I'd like to move also. And I was able to take part of the marketing job at the credit union with me and work freelance. And that was kind of my, okay, I know I can pay my rent. And then I was able to devote most of my whole self to ceramics. And it was kind of that leap of faith of like, you know, if I gave my whole day to this, what could I accomplish instead of just having five or six hours a day? Um, And I think once I made that shift of like, okay, I'm going for it. That's when opportunities came and, and things started to unfold. And I really knew that I could do it. Um, And so I moved to Omaha and it was so cheap for me to live there. And my studio was in my basement. Um, my kiln was right next to the dryer in my laundry room. Mm -hmm. And so I would basically just leave the dryer unplugged and I'd plug the kiln in and would hang dry all my clothes and fire the kiln, um, as often as I needed to. And so Omaha is a special place for me because that was like the city that helped me bring my business to life. And, um, it, you know, it was a great kind of like first place to go when you're young and you don't know what you're doing and you wanted to get away, but also have the security of being close to home. And in case things don't work out, you can still go back and, Um, so yeah, I just kind of, I knew once I was able to devote myself to it, I knew I could make some things happen. And within two weeks of that decision, um, Etsy featured me on their front page, Instagram had featured me and all of this stuff just kind of started unfolding so quickly. And it's been, I guess I've been doing this full time now for eight years. Wow, that's amazing. And I'd love to talk a little bit about your aesthetic style um, and then also about your photography, because I do think the combination of those two things is partially the reason some of these um, uh, opportunities came your way. I mean, obviously, um, there's multiple reasons, but I think your style is so beautiful and, um, and it just really strikes a chord with, um, kind of the aesthetic of right now. And, and maybe you're partially setting that aesthetic. I don't know, but certainly in ceramics for me, you are. And so I wondered if you could just kind of, I don't know how you describe it. Obviously we're on a podcast, so it's hard because, you know, people are hearing it instead of seeing it, but, um, how do you describe it when you're just talking about it to somebody who, you know, doesn't have a piece of your pottery in front of them? Well, all of that is really nice of you to say. So thank you. Um, But I, you know, I, because I started in photography, I've kind of always had this love for really nice photos. And um, I, what I, I think, 
the thing I like most about my work is the, the subtle imperfections. Like I'm not trying to make the tightest teacup you've ever sipped out of. I want, I want it to be a very natural, perfectly imperfect kind of thing. Um, and I, I don't really know how to describe that other than, you know, just that wabi sabi. I'm, I'm not going, I'm not aiming for perfect porcelain work. Um, I want that unsteady. I have a very unsteady hand. So I, I have very gestural marks and, um, you know, the drips, a lot of with glazes and ceramics, a lot of it is unplanned too. There's kind of this, once you put something in the kiln, you kind of say a little prayer to the kiln gods that it all goes well, but some parts of it are out of your hand and, and are left to surprise. And I really love that about my work and um, just the medium in itself. And so when I'm, you know, when I'm trying to take a photo of pieces, I am, I really love having my work, you know, it's, it's very shiny and bright and colorful and lots of gold accents and having that piece, you know, photographed on a dusty studio table. Those are my favorite photos, kind of that juxtaposition of the dusty ceramics studio. And then this shiny gold object that came out of the kiln. Um, I kind of just, I favor that imperfect look and I'm, I'm, it's, it's kind of a hard thing to aim for because I remember I wanted to make that work in college and my teacher was like, Oh, I, I get what you want. But the problem is, is you have to be really good at it first to achieve that imperfect pot because you can't, you can't just make a lumpy kindergarten pinch pot and say that it's perfect and, and out into the world. And so she, the, the work I was trying to make, she was trying to explain to me that first you need to be really good at it and you need to be able to make those really tight, perfect pieces in order to make that kind of one-off piece that has a little bit of a tilt to it and a lumpy side. And, and so I was kind of intrigued by that challenge of like, okay, first I'm going to get good at this and then I'm going to kind of let my shaky hand do what it does and and not try to fix it. I'm just going to let it stay that way. Yeah. And it reminds me a little bit of when you go to the gallery and you see a really abstract painting and it's like an all white canvas with one blue line and somebody says, I could make that. And it's like, actually, you have to become a really good painter to be able to then walk back and make something so simple and make it that good, you know, Um, which is an interesting thing that people frequently skip over. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I thought I could just skip over it. And I was like, Oh, wait, I guess I have to put in the years first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, but why? And then you're like, Oh, yeah, now I see. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay. And and you did mention gold, you use a lot of gold. And um, it adds this sort of glamorous, um, I don't know, undertone or something. Mm -hmm. And is it hard? I don't know a lot about ceramic glaze. Is it hard to work with gold? Do you have to wear any special equipment or is there, is it, is gold, um, does that add a layer of complexity as far as, you know, your work is concerned as far as applying it or, or anything like that? Absolutely. Um, it, first of all, it comes in this itty bitty, like one gram vial and it's like 45 bucks. And so I've, I've spilled it before and it is oh, devastating because you're just like, oh, oh my no. God, there goes my money. And so, you know, it's, it's an overglaze. So first you make the piece, then you fire that and then you glaze the piece and then you fire it again. And then with the gold, you add the gold on and then you fire it for a third time in the kiln. Um, so it's, it's a, an entirely separate step in the process and, Um, you know, it took a lot of practice. I, again, I also, I started with, um, I would start with gold leaf before I really practiced with gold luster. I was over the glaze. I was adding an adhesive and then 
adding gold leaf and then doing a clear sealant over the top. And so that was kind of my phase one. And then I, I was like, okay, I'm ready to try the gold luster. And the reason I hadn't tried it sooner was because my kiln was in my house. And when I work with the gold luster, I wear rubber gloves. I wear a respirator. I have ventilation, um, make sure the dog doesn't come with me to the studio that day. Um, I have to, I have to clean my surface. I have to, you know, I have to prepare to do the gold luster. And I knew I didn't want those vapors firing at my home. So I kind of waited until I had moved my studio out of the home. And that's when I started experimenting with gold luster. Um, but it, it is, it's, uh, it took me a while to get the hang of it. Um, and now I've really just embraced like, um, you know, I have to use a teeny tiny brush and I have a shaky hand kind of just all the time anyway. So my lines were never perfect. I have kind of a wobbly, imperfect circle, but you know, over time I've just come to embrace that. And it's what, it's kind of what I wanted in the first place anyway. Um, and it, it lends itself well to being a challenging material to work with and me just leaning into, okay, well, this is going to not be a straight line. I'll do my best, but it's kind of fun that way anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, um, I, I watched, um, the, I think it's called, um, the great pottery throwdown. Um, I don't oh, know if yeah. you've watched the show, but I have, yeah, I love that. I love this show. And, um, and for me as a person who didn't know a lot about pottery, it was a great teaching show because, mm-hmm. wow, it's a long process. It's a yes. long process and it's super physical and it takes days and days and days for, um, for one piece. And then you have to fill the kiln before you mm-hmm. can, you know, yeah. so it really gave me, um, a ton of respect for this art form. So I thought it was, it was really eye opening. Yeah. Yeah. I already know I work terribly under pressure, so I would be the worst at that show as a contestant. <laughs> I've I've had nightmares about being on that show because I'm like, there's no way I could turn it into a challenge. Like even just, a, you know, someone commissioning a mug from me, I'm like, okay, you cannot mess this up. You've got to get it right. And I put a lot of pressure on myself when, you know, it comes down to like an important piece that I'm trying to make. And I mean, we talked about your work ethic and it sounds like you've got a strong one. And I wondered if you have experienced burnout, even from something that you so clearly love, um, mm-hmm. have you gone through, you know, periods when you just felt like, I, I don't want to do this anymore, or I just don't feel the love for this right now, I'm, I'm done. Um, and, and if you did, how did you get through it? Yes, I have felt that. And um, I think it was 2018 and early 2019 was the hardest year of my life. And it was, it was really, for me, I was on this track of building a big business and I had four full-time employees and I had business partners and I had business debt and I had this big studio that I was wondering where, how I was going to afford it each month. And it kind of got how, how much I said yes to became this burden of having so many things that needed to get done. And I also found myself, I was just a manager for all of my employees. And I, I missed the days of being in the studio and getting lost in my creations. And, um, I, I knew, or I was, I was starting to realize that with this growth and the potential of growing this thing really big, my role changes entirely. And I, I wasn't enjoying it. And I, I caught myself like crying on the way to work. And, you know, I just have these terrible stomach aches of like, Oh, I'm dreading my day. And it finally was, you know, several months of feeling that way where, I was like, okay, I think I need to, you know, 
go see a doctor and kind of get, get a plan of how I'm going to change this and get back to enjoying what I do because I felt, I felt a lot of guilt of like, look at all this stuff that I have and I've created and why don't I love this? Um, and, and so adding, piling on the guilt doesn't help. So I was like not getting anywhere in a clearer mindset by making myself feel worse. So it really kind of slowly, you know, I didn't just cut my staff one day, it kind of over a course of several months. Um, and I, I felt really open to talk with my employees about it where I was just like, I bet you guys notice that I'm unhappy. So I, I have to be real with you guys and kind of make a change for myself and for the future of the object enthusiast. And it was, it was really nice to have uh, teammates that understood and, um, and were, were there to, you know, assist me as long as I needed them and were ready to move on when it was time. And um, so now I'm back to just me and myself at the studio and I have a much smaller studio and I say no to a lot of wholesale just because there's something about creating the same thing over and over and over again that is fun at first and really rewarding. And then it just became really hard to do. And I, I was kind of sacrificing my own happiness and well-being, and kind of feeling like I had lost a little bit of the creative spark when I was in production mode, because the things that were being ordered, I needed to create and they needed to match the photo and they needed to get shipped at a certain time. And, um, it, it just kind of became a job and I was really sad about that. But at the same time now I've, I've kind of regrouped and figured out, okay, I'd rather make one of a kind pieces. And I really enjoy speaking with my customer. Um, so, Wholesale isn't really the avenue I'm pursuing. It's more of like having an open studio sale or a pop-up at my friend's shop or just kind of more opportunities that let me connect directly to my customer and my supporters. And um, it's made me a lot happier. And I'm now when I go to the studio, there are days where I'm like, Ooh, what do I want to make today? And it's, it's not about, what orders are on the docket. It's about my own, you know, freedom to create what I want to make. And did you have to accept some loss in revenue to be able to make that happen? Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a point where I, I, I still have a soft spot for Martha Stewart, but at the time I was like, I want to create a big brand like her. And, and at the time, you know, I was amazed that I could afford to pay four people full time. And, and I, I felt like I was paying them generously. And um, we had a big, beautiful studio. And, and, you know, I was proud of all of that. But I, I knew that something was missing. And, and saying no is really hard for me. Like I am, I like to make others happy and, and agree to whatever they want. And so, you know, I've, I have downsized everything, but I think it's been a lot more rewarding, not necessarily in a monetary standpoint, but in a personal, I'm closer to my life goals kind of thing. And also, right. There's, there's a weird prestige thing to mm-hmm. like in so many of the bios or little intros of the interviews that I read about you as I was getting ready for this, right? They'll say like, and she's done a wholesale order or worked with anthropology. Yeah. <laughs> and it sounds like that's not in the cards, you know, but for some reason, that's like the thing that people want to latch on to as like the prestigious thing that's happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I felt a lot of like, well, what are people going to think if I let go of my crew and I downsize my studio and, you know, anymore, I'm, I'm 
trying really hard to be less concerned about what it looks like because, you know, social media and the internet, it's everybody's painted picture of what they want to show the world. And it's not, it's not always how they're feeling or their day-to-day reality. And so, you know, I've, I've really had to work really hard at just not worrying about what will anyone else think. And truly the likelihood is they're probably not thinking about it as much as I think they are thinking about it. A hundred percent. That's a hundred percent true. It, it really would slow me down creatively if I was so worried and concerned about what it looks like to the outside world. So, you know, I'm trying really hard to make good work and that's my number one concern and not the quantity of orders and, and money coming in. Yeah. And it sounds like now you're in a much better place. And I, I think that's, that's great. And I know, um, you know, I know that you've spoken publicly about, um, you know, dealing with anxiety, um, at times and dealing with depression at times. And, Mm -hmm. um, and it, and it just sounds like this has really, um, helped you to find that place where, you can be creative and get back to those original feelings you had at Kansas State where you loved doing this again. And yes. yeah, so that's heartening, yeah. heartening to hear. Yeah, it really is. It's like, you know, I, I had a conversation with my therapist once where she said, when was the last time you really loved what you do? And I, you know, I, I had to really think about it. And it was... It was when I had first started out when I was like in my basement studio working in my slippers and, you know, drinking coffee at home and hadn't even come up for air in hours because I was so deep in what I was making. And and she was like, well, what how do you get back to that? Because, you know, clearly you don't want to go back to your old basement studio and working in your slippers, but how do you get back to that feeling of, of loving what you do? And, and so those were the changes I knew I had to make where yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't about a big business anymore. It was just about making sure that I'm happy and fulfilled and creatively expressing what I want to express. Exactly. And I, um, before we get to your recommendations, I did want to talk for just a moment about Instagram. Um, because mm-hmm. even though, <laughs> Even though we've just said that social media is really a painted picture and is not reality, at the same time, while you were at your credit union job, you were studying marketing and marketing for this creative business. And it's undeniable that it's important. And if you do want to succeed, and you do still want to succeed and reach new people and have them see what you're making um, and interact with those customers, and that is still important, no matter the scale of your business. Um, And Instagram is clearly a really effective way to do that. And I know you're not on there every day, it sounds like, like posting constantly. (laughs) But that being said, you do have 114,000 followers there, which is incredibly impressive. And so, um, and maybe there was a time I didn't scroll all the way back, but, um, that you were, uh, you know, posting constantly and, and building it more actively than you are now. But I wondered if you could kind of talk about sort of your approach to that platform now and, and sort of how you think about it, um, what you do there and, um, what you like about it and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I was a very early adopter of Instagram. And so I, you know, I remember it from the early days back in 2010 and some of the people who I had connected with then I am still connected with now. And I feel like they're my friends and my peers. And so first and foremost, I think the best part about it has been the people that I've met and that have found me and support me and, um, you know, cheer me on. Uh, I, you know, that does not go unnoticed. And I think about that often and how lucky I feel. Um, and I used to use it very regularly. Like if I hadn't posted daily, I felt like I wasn't working. Um, and now I think partially it has become such a time suck for me where I get, I get roped into the endless scroll of, 
of looking and watching and reading. And um, so for me, it's kind of been like, okay, I'm not my most productive self when I'm spending a lot of time on this. And I have slowed down on posting. And I, I feel like that started when I was so overwhelmed by life and business and managing employees and all that. Um, and now I'm still, I'm still guilting myself like, oh, I should post something or I don't know, I don't want to post old stuff or, you know, it's just that weird pressure of, I must, I must perform. Otherwise I'm not relevant anymore. And so I'm, I'm constantly feeling the push and pull of what do I share? And, you know, I don't, I don't get too personal on there. Um, but occasionally I, I try to, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, I don't want it to go away, but I miss, I kind of miss the old days of, you know, it, it didn't feel so busy and like, it felt like fun to share photos and express myself. And, um, you know, I get bogged down on the algorithm of like, I have all these followers and I only get 300 likes and, Oh, it must mean they don't like my work. And, you know, so it's just this weird mental game that I'm still so curious about that app and how it makes me feel the way it makes me feel. Um, but it is such a powerful tool and without it, there's no way I would be where I am now. So I'm, I'm always so blown away by, you know, sharing about an open studio and the amount of people who show up and it's, it's a very powerful tool and I'm thankful to have the audience, but I'm always questioning what do I do with this and how, how do I best use it? So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think, I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You're definitely not alone there. So, um, I wanted to get to your recommendations and I know that you, really enjoy walking, um, taking walks and your, Mm -hmm. your dog. When we first, uh, were emailing about this pod, doing this podcast, your dog, um, was having some surgery. So, um, how is your dog Ruby doing? And uh, are you back to walking? (laughs) She's doing good. We are allowed to do five minute walks. I think we're allowed to do it once a day, but I'm kind of cheating and we're doing like three, five minute walks a day. Um, but I'm still kind of walking. I sneak out alone and go on my walks without her. Um, but yeah, she tore her ACL at the beginning of quarantine. Cause we, we bought this fancy like tennis ball chuck it that you can throw it extra far. And of course, like the first day we used it, she injured herself. Um, cause she loves to play ball so much. She had basic, I mean, she's got metal in her legs, so it was a pretty invasive surgery. Um, and she's an active dog, so it's been hard to keep her cooped up inside and laying still, but she's doing really well and I'm slowly getting her back out there and getting myself out there too. That's good. Yeah, I love to walk. And I will say during the pandemic, we've been taking so many more walks than we normally do. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. thankfully, it's kind of just been um, good weather. So it's kind yeah. of coincided with the coming of spring and summer. Um, so that's po- possibly why as well. But there also hasn't been anything else to do. <laughs> so that's part right. of it too. <laughs> so and I think everyone in my entire neighborhood has just been walking constantly. But um, yeah, so it's been good, though. I mean, it gets really, really cold where I live. So I don't know mm-hmm. that it will continue. But it has been nice. Um, we've been walking a lot. So yeah. 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 I mean, there was a point where I was kind of at my, my lowest feeling of overwhelm and depression and walks were always that constant thing that, you know, I, I made time for before her surgery. I mean, we would do five miles a day. Um, and I was, I knew I would, I would just look down at her on the leash and I was like, you are helping me get better. And this is saving my life. And if I didn't have walks, I, I don't know what I would do. So, you know, I, my mom was an avid walker when I was growing up. And I remember being a kid and just being like, what does she even 
do and think about for those long walks. And now that I'm a grown up, I'm like, oh, I get it. Like, it's just meditative and you clear your head and you see your neighbor and you, you know, a lot happens out on a walk. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And for me too, and I've talked about this before, but like, when everything seems so tense, and then you see nature, and it's just like, keeps going, you know, mm-hmm. Na- nature just seems to continue. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very reassuring. So yeah. um, okay, and then you enjoy my favorite murder podcast. And I listened to many of these episodes. Um, I had to drive my oldest daughter on these long drives. Um to go to veterinary camp. Um, anyway, and so we would listen to them together on the way there and the way back. It was like a 50 minute drive each way. And so we yeah. would just listen to my favorite murder the whole way. <laughs> so, um, I got pretty into it then. Yeah. The hosts, they're just so good at, you know, making you feel like you're sitting around with your friends talking about a story. And I think it's, it's such, I listen to it in the studio and I always will save an episode for like a big studio day. Cause I'm like, Ooh, I want, I want to have something to work to. And, um, I, I'm just kind of obsessed with true crime and just ever curious about, you know, all of that. And so it's kind of just been a, a nice, uh, I don't know. It's so hard to talk. Like, you know, I don't want to offend anyone by, talking about my obsession of these stories of people being murdered, but it is just kind of a, a strange fascination. Yeah. And they do a good job. They, they do a good job as storytellers mm-hmm. and that's a big part of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So in the podcast medium, for sure. Um, and then you recently got into drawing and I feel like I relate so much that you were saying that you, um, never really felt like somebody who wanted to keep a sketchbook or was like super great at drawing. And I feel the same way. Like I, um, you know, I have a sewing pattern business, but I, and I have a sketchbook, but I, I never felt like I was so great at rendering, you know? Um, but it is something that I want to do more of, even if I don't consider myself awesome at drawing. Yes. And you're, you, the what I've realized is the things that I don't think are awesome, somehow some other people do think it's awesome. So I've even gotten brave enough to share some of my drawings on Instagram. And, um, you know, it's fun to, to kind of, I've also started imagining work that is two dimensional on paper. And it's so different than what I thought I would do or was capable of doing. Um, I took a drawing class at K-State and long story short, I was terrible at it. I got a D and the professor, one time he came over to me and, you know, Emily, some people just aren't meant to be artists. And I remember just being so put off. Oh gosh. Just because I'm bad at drawing doesn't mean I can't do other art. And, you know, I didn't, it's not like it really got to me, but I was just so annoyed by that. And And I think about it often and a lot of times in a very much well, like, okay, well, look at me now kind of thing. And um, so that's kind of why I always avoided drawing. And I I never enjoyed sketching out a piece two dimensionally because I was like, I would rather make five versions of it with my hands in clay than draw it. And so I was, I was always avoiding drawing and, and then my boyfriend now, it was last year for my birthday, he, he was in a book binding class. And so he made me a sketchbook, everything. He made it all. He sewed this, the binding. And, and so once I got that gift, I was like, well, I better use this sketchbook because he made it for me. And once I started doing it, it just happened and I kept going with it. So now I'm catching myself enjoying drawing. That's great. I'm so happy for you. (laughs) That's wonderful. (laughs) Well, sometimes you just need someone to kind of show you the light. And once you see it, you're like, okay, I get it. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Oh, well, Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Well, thank you for having me. It was a real honor. And it's like my second time I've been on a podcast. So being a avid listener of podcasts, I am 
so happy. So thank you. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by Shaq Spindle Company. Shaq Spindle Company is committed to supporting their dealers in their educational programs. Explore the resources available on their website and contact them about how you can add spinning and weaving to your product mix. Learn more at shackspindle.com. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for their newsletter to be entered into a drawing to win a shacked lily loom. Only the first 100 respondents will be entered. So sign up now. Thank you so much, Shack Spindle Company. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.